This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Wusstest du, dass 61% der Deutschen bereit wären, Geld für eine Versicherung der Erde auszugeben? Bis das möglich ist, kannst du deine Welt im Kleinen versichern. Die passenden Angebote findet der Clark-Algorithmus aus über 160 Versicherern für dich. Natürlich zugeschnitten auf deine aktuelle Lebenssituation. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Teste uns. Jetzt anmelden und deine Versicherungen einfach über die kostenlose App managen. Ohne Papierkram. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. A whole year has passed when some of us felt like collapsing in a heap, recovering from the madness of the November 2020 presidential election. I say recovering in a heap. Some others were trying to convince the world that the election had actually been rigged and that they were actually the winner. I'm speaking, of course, of Donald J. Trump and his Republican backers. You fast forward a year and, well, not much has changed with Trump. He still insists that the election was won by him. But a huge amount has happened in the intervening 12 months, from impeachments to insurrections. That was just January. But as this year draws to a close, we are also gearing up for the next one and asking not just what happened in 2021, but what we can expect from Washington and beyond in 2022. So, to do some reminiscing and perhaps to make the odd reckless prediction, I'm joined by Joni Grieve, breaking news reporter for Guardian US, who's in charge of bringing us the most up-to-date news minute by minute in the Guardian Politics Live blog. Joni, very good to have you back on the podcast. I was saying that we were all kind of collapsed in a heap a year ago, and I think probably a lot of people around the world were feeling some relief and the hope that 2021 would be a quieter and calmer year than 2020. What about you? What were you expecting from this first year of Joe Biden in office? So Joe Biden obviously ran on this message that he was going to heal the soul of the nation. That is what he kept saying on the campaign trail in 2020. And I think a lot of observers of U.S. politics, including myself, were pretty skeptical that that was actually going to be able to happen. When you think about the just intense, bitter partisanship that has defined Washington for the past five years and realistically, really the past decade, it seemed like he was really going to have his work cut out for him if he was going to try to encourage a return to unity and bipartisanship. And as it turns out, that has been extremely difficult for him, with the exception of the uh, passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill last month. There's really just not been a whole lot of kumbaya moments on Capitol Hill. And uh, but uh, that being said, I have been surprised by just how intense the backlash was to Biden's election. And while I did expect some backlash on the right, I did not expect a full scale insurrection on Capitol Hill, which is really my own fault because they were planning it in public, basically on social media, on, you know, Reddit forums, etc. But that really took me by surprise at the start of the year. 
I'm just casting my mind back to December 2020. And I would say around the world, maybe more outside the United States, even than inside it, there was a feeling of relief, you know, that we'd all been through a four year long psychodrama. And Joe Biden may be unexciting, but it was going to be steady and we could all think about other things. That was the that was a little bit the assumption. But the the scales fell from our eyes pretty soon once we got into January. Politics hadn't stopped. And we've talked about it so much on this podcast because we were straight out of the frying pan of the November presidential straight away at the start of the year. And the first week of January, we went to yet another round of elections in those two Senate runoff elections for those two seats in the Senate. Huge amounts was were at stake there um, because, of course, it would be control of the Senate that was up for grabs. And we dove into that in last week's show. But the that wasn't the only reason why Georgia was in the news. And I remember we scrambled to get together a special edition of the podcast on the 4th of January to cover a jaw dropper of a phone call between Donald Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State, that's kind of the returning officer in British terms, person who oversees the election, Brad Raffensperger. Joni, just remind us of what happened in that jaw-dropper of a phone call. So in that phone call, Trump basically pressured the Secretary of State of Georgia to find enough votes in his state to throw the election to Donald Trump. And that when that call dropped, it really just shocked a lot of people in Washington for how blatant it was. You had a sitting president of the United States telling a a high ranking election official to essentially falsify results. But that wasn't even the biggest event of that first week of January. It came on January the 6th. I remember January the 6th happens to be my wife's birthday and I was cooking a special at home because of lockdown, a lockdown supper for her to celebrate her birthday when, as I was chopping the vegetables, the word came on the radio that something extraordinary was happening on Capitol Hill. Where were you that day? And, and, And do you remember what it was like hearing first word of what was happening on the Capitol? I was uh, leading the U.S. Politics Guardian live blog on January 6th, as I often am. And initially, I was covering both the congressional certification of the election results and the responses to the fact that Democrats had won both Georgia Senate seats, giving them control of the Senate. So I was kind of covering both of those stories at the same time when the first footage rolled in from CNN. And simultaneously, I'm seeing images on Twitter from Capitol Hill reporters and I was not on Capitol Hill myself, but from where I was in in D.C., all you could hear all day was just sirens constantly going through the city. At that point, as we watched the pictures and got the reports and I was getting text messages from people in D.C., it, I suppose the fear was this could actually be a full-blown kind of revolution, the storming of the Capitol uh, and of Congress and an insurrection that would uh, overturn an election. But also, there were crowds just mobbing inside the halls of Congress. At that point, because now, of course, we know how it panned out, that the insurrection failed. But there must have been a thought at one point that went through your mind of, there's going to be a takeover of the government. 
Absolutely, yes. And on the day itself, there was a detail that a very wise congressional staffer had just happened to grab the documents that were the literal certification of the election results. And it's just chilling to think about what it would have happened if even that person hadn't been so quick on their feet. And the fact that a lawmaker was not seriously injured in that attack still feels like somewhat of a miracle months later. The purpose of the joint session having concluded pursuant to Senate Concurrent Resolution 1, 117th Congress, the chair declares the joint session dissolved. Congress did, as you say, they certified Joe Biden's victory. The insurrection in the end failed. Those mobs who broke in kind of mooched around and milled around in the well of the Senate as if they didn't know what to do. Now they had uh, succeeded. Almost in, immediately, the Democrats moved to propose that Donald Trump be impeached for his part in inciting the mob. And he was indeed impeached. That did pass through the House so that he then stood trial for that crime of inciting insurrection. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful People. This attack never would have happened but for Donald Trump. In cases of impeachment, i.e. what we are doing, shall not extend further than removal from office. What is so hard about that? He was acquitted, of course, uh, found not guilty um, for that crime. And by then, uh, he was no longer president after uh, January the 20th. But I suppose the legacy that leaves is a strong one because the question after we've all gone through this, and of course he was impeached twice, was if you cannot convict an American president uh, and remove him from office, admittedly in his dying days of office, for a crime like this, which was so blatant and seen by the entire world, in effect, there is no sanction. I mean, nobody's ever going to, no president is ever going to be removed from office, are they? I think that that is a great question, and it's one that, unfortunately, I don't have a very good answer for, because you're right. It seems like if if there were ever a a high crime and misdemeanor, as the Constitution says, that would qualify you for impeachment, it would seem that inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol would certainly qualify. And yet there were still enough Senate Republicans who said that they did not believe that that was worthy of impeachment. Now, of course, as you mentioned, some of them used the justification that at that point, Trump was already out of office. President Biden had already been inaugurated, so it was not appropriate to do so. But all the same, it represented an opportunity for Republicans to send a message that they were putting country and democracy itself over party, and they chose not to do so. And in the end, I think just 10 Republicans in the House and seven in the Senate voted against uh, Donald Trump. But overall, Donald Trump went formally unpunished, at least by Congress. Social media took a different view, and he was booted off Twitter, most famously, because that had always been his uh, platform of, of choice. Uh, Twitter said they were uh, kicking him off because of the risk of further incitement of violence. And he has stayed off. He's not on Facebook either. I'm interested to know what effect you think that's had. I mean, maybe on Trump himself and on the Trump movement, but also, if you like, on all of us. I mean, the the watching world, that we are no longer waking up to see what latest, sometimes deranged outpouring has come from the 
keyboard of the former president or then president. What difference do you think it's made to American politics that there haven't been, you know, Trump Twitter storms as a near daily occurrence? I think it has made a difference. And as one data point of that, it seems like Trump agrees that it has made a difference because he keeps trying to find new ways to reach his supporters on a sort of widespread platform. And so far, it seems like he has not found any kind of good substitute for Twitter, especially and Facebook as well. You saw earlier this year that he tried to launch a what uh, my colleague David Smith referred to as a glorified blog at one point to try to reach a support that quickly came to an end. And now he's launching some kind of new social media venture to try to, again, reach his supporters and spread his message. And I think that really points to the fact that he has felt his reach very much diminished in the wake of those decisions from Twitter and Facebook. Although all the polling suggests that his hold on those Republican voters remains strong and some enormous figure in polls say they still believe that he was the true winner of the election. I think you see figures of two thirds of Republicans up or more still believe that. Nevertheless, the big rebellion or revolt never came, despite the QAnon followers who did somehow expect there was going to be some miracle that would restore Donald Trump to the presidency. It didn't come. Joe Biden was sworn in in a kind of scaled down inauguration. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. But since then, politics has still sort of looked back a little bit at the, those events. The shadow of January 6th has loomed over the whole year. And just this week, the House Select Committee that is investigating what happened uh, voted to recommend a charge of criminal contempt of Congress against Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Where the fate of Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's last White House chief of staff, is now up to the Biden Justice Department, which will decide whether to prosecute the former congressman on criminal charges of contempt. Tell us how they reached their conclusion and also some of the rather hair-raising evidence that has surfaced in just the last few days, including the communication that's come from some of Fox News's biggest names. Right. So the House voted to refer Mark Meadows to the Justice Department for potential contempt charges about a week after he made it clear that he was no longer going to cooperate with the committee that is investigating the Capitol insurrection. What's interesting is that before he made that decision, he had already turned over about 9000 documents to the committee as part of his cooperation. And so The reason that Meadows gave for ending his cooperation was that he felt that the committee had overreached in seeking information about him. And also he cited the executive privilege claims that former President Trump has tried to make over certain documents, although those claims have been disputed by the committee and some legal experts. But what's interesting is that the committee has said, even if you set aside the executive privilege claims, they would like to speak to Meadows about the documents that he himself has already turned over because they raise a lot of questions. We are here to address a very serious matter. Contempt of Congress by a former chief of staff to a former president of the United States. At a committee hearing earlier this week, uh, Liz Cheney, the Republican vice chair of the committee, read some of the text messages that were included in the documents. Mr. Meadows received numerous text messages, which he has produced without any privilege claim, imploring that Mr. Trump take the specific action 
we all knew his duty required. And they include text messages from Fox News hosts and Donald Trump Jr., the former president's eldest son, and uh, Republican lawmakers even, as the insurrection unfolded. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, he needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. In one text, uh, the Fox News host Laura Ingram said that Trump immediately needed to make a statement from the Oval Office and to try to end that he was destroying his legacy, basically, by letting the insurrection unfold. And yet, just hours later, she went on TV and told her viewers... Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. That the insurrection was actually allegedly staged by um, anti-fascist protesters, which is absolutely false, to state the obvious. And it's really alarming stuff that is included in the documents that Mark Meadows has already turned over. And the committee would very much like a word with him about those documents. It's been really one of the very troubling themes of 2021, the extent to which one of America's two main parties, mem- you know, parts of that party are moving away from democracy. But all right, so this, that committee has is, is recommended contempt charges against Mark Meadows. You've also had Steve Bannon, uh, who could also be subject to very similar legal remedy. What else should we expect to come out of this committee as we head into 2022. So what's interesting about the contempt charges that have already been leveled against Steve Bannon and the potential contempt charges against Mark Meadows is that it may encourage, to use a light word, it may encourage some of the other uh, former Trump aides and allies who have been deposed by the committee to actually cooperate and uh, produce documents in order to avoid similar charges for themselves. And what might those conversations reveal? It's so telling, it's so revealing, isn't it, that here we are a year on and we still are talking about Donald Trump, partly because he just does dominate the political conversation. Before we leave that, though, the legal net is tightening, not just out of that committee and over January the 6th, but all kinds of other uh, legal battles are still being played out. People say that Donald Trump is still the front runner if he wants it for the Republican nomination for 2024. But I just wonder if you think any of the legal avenues that are out there could come to some kind of end or conclusion for Donald Trump. You know, we saw that the uh, Department of Justice did force the release of Donald Trump's tax returns, at least to a House committee. Is there any way that the law gets to Donald Trump in 2022 or soon, even before the politics does? I think it's still hard to say at this point, but I do agree with you, Jonathan, that there does seem to be a sense that the walls are caving in on Trump, right? Because you have all these investigations that are piling up and it's still up in the air as to what may come of each of those cases. But I think that 2022 will be telling in that respect. So Trump was a massive story in 2020 and his shadow still looms over 2021. The same could be said of really the dominant background theme of politics all over the world in 2021. And that is, of course, the pandemic. My job as president is to protect all Americans. 
Joe Biden was such a contrast to Donald Trump because he believed that there, there had to be quite strict measures to combat it. And there was an assumption, and he got off to a flying start, that right, once he was there, vaccines would happen and everyone would get jabbed. It hasn't quite worked out that way, that vaccines have been subject to the same partisanship and politics and culture wars that we saw were so rampant in those four years of Donald Trump. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. How much damage has that caused for Joe Biden in 2021? And what are his prospects for turning things around um, COVID-wise to improve on the fact that just over 60% of people in America are vaccinated, whole parts of the population refusing to get vaccinated? What are his prospects for turning that around in 2022? So I think that Joe Biden and uh, many members of his administration were somewhat surprised by how much vaccine resistance there was in the U.S. It seemed like there was a hope that once the vaccines were approved and made widely available, some of that skepticism would dissipate quickly. And of course, we've seen that has not been the case at all. And as you said, Jonathan, there are still pockets of the country that are largely unvaccinated. And that is particularly worrisome as now we deal with the arrival of a new variant, the Omicron variant. And as case numbers are ticking up again, it seems like the White House is doubling down on its message that all eligible Americans need to get vaccinated. They need to get their booster shots. But we are still dealing with a lot of vaccine resistance that is uh, mirroring, as you said, many of the culture wars that we have going on in our country on other issues. So it seems unclear whether the White House will be able to effectively convince people to get the vaccine. And if they are unable to, there are some real concerns about how much devastation Omicron could wreak on America in 2022. And I wonder what kind of political price Joe Biden pays for that or whether plenty of voters understand and accept that there's very little he can do when a chunk of the country just doesn't believe the public health messages and you know won't get vaccinated or won't wear masks and so on uh, and that this has become so intensely political i mean one of the more amazing facts we reported over the course of the year was that the best single indicator of whether or not an american has got vaccinated is whether they voted for joe biden or Donald Trump. If you know which way someone voted, you have a very good chance of guessing whether or not they are vaccinated. So this is a big issue about really the Republican world and the Republican movement. What's your sense of the outlook for 2022 in that kind of almost battle for the soul of the Republican Party and which way you think it's going as we head into 2022? So I think it's really telling that the few Republicans who have been willing to stand up to Trump, many of them have been forced to leave office. And now you have some of the Republicans who voted to uh, impeach Trump are now leaving office as well. When uh, Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, uh, who was one of those 10 Republicans, when he announced that he was not going to run for reelection, you saw Trump put out a statement of one down, nine to go. So it's that idea of anyone who voices any kind of serious criticism of him, they have to be taken out of office. And one trend that will be interesting to watch for 2022 is if Republicans take back the House of Representatives, which they are currently favored to do, who will they elect as their speaker? Because theoretically, it should be Kevin McCarthy, who has served as the House Minority Leader for a few years now. 
But there is already talk that maybe McCarthy is not the right person for the job because he had the gall to criticize Trump about the insurrection for about a day or so after it happened until he got in line, as it were, and defended Trump uh, over the insurrection that he incited. And so there you see some uh, talk from the far right members of the House Republican caucus saying maybe it should be someone else. So that is a trend I'm very interested to see in 2022 is who will lead the House Republicans. Yeah, no, that's one of the big questions. Divisions are not only on one side. Uh, the Democrats have been divided too, perhaps not as much numerically, but certainly with as much, if not greater, significance. We've talked quite a bit about Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, latter of West Virginia, and the kind of vetoing role they have played on Joe Biden's agenda. We are still waiting as we head into the closing days of 2021 for his signature Build Back Better bill, so-called social infrastructure, all kinds of radical policy changes that are polled very well and are very popular. But he's not been able, Joe Biden, to drive those through because those two senators did bulk at the size of the price tag. Is there anything President Biden can do somehow in 2022 to bring the either bring those two on board or somehow get the rest of the democratic party to moderate so that what they propose is palatable to cinema and mansion what do you see coming for this president who did bill himself as a bridge builder to somehow bring those two sides together Honestly, I think that task is going to become even harder in 2022 because starting next year, members' focus is going to turn toward their own re-election campaigns because they'll be starting to think about the midterms. And that reality is going to make it even harder to advance major legislation. So if Democrats start 2022 without having passed the Build Back Better Act, they are really going to have their work cut out for them to pass it in the future. And that will likely stir up even more resentment between progressives and centrists, and there's already plenty of it, believe me, there will almost certainly be accusations from progressives that Manchin and Cinema cost the party valuable time to advance their legislative agenda and make a good case to voters for why they should be reelected. It's not as if, though, the other legislators elsewhere in the country haven't been busy in 2021. They have. Again, this has been a phenomenon of the year. These restrictive voting laws that have been passed, yes, in the state of Georgia, but in many states, uh, Republican-held states, essentially throwing up obstacles in the way of people voting, whether getting rid of early voting or making voting by mail that much harder. A whole lot of restrictions, which I think it's pretty well accepted, hit people on low incomes or minority ethnic communities. Um, This is... Uh, you know, been a big feature of the past year in legislation. And then grabbing a lot of the headlines, this abortion law. The law, which is also known as SB8, bans abortion after around six weeks. Uh, as is often pointed out, well before many women know they're pregnant. It also puts enforcement in the hands of citizens by allowing anyone to sue people who help women get an abortion, uh, like a doctor or clinical staff. Or- and that being upheld by the Supreme Court in early December. These are big uh, moments in the constitutional life of the country. Uh, And abortion, many people predict, could move from being an issue for the courts, as it's been for the last 50 years in a way, and become an issue right front and centre for politics and for legislators 
in 2022. What do you think or what do you see happening uh, with the politics of abortion in 2022? So the Supreme Court heard oral arguments earlier this month in a related abortion case to the Texas law. And that other case involves Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. And during those arguments, a majority of the court, which, again, skews 6-3 in favor of conservatives, they actually seemed open to the idea of overturning Roe versus Wade, which is, of course, the landmark 1973 case that established a woman's right to access abortion. If the justices do indeed decide to overturn Roe, you could see a situation where abortion is only accessible in Democratic-led states, and that will have huge implications on millions of Americans, and it will only further solidify this idea that there are two Americas. There's the red America led by conservatives and the blue America led by liberals. We should talk a little bit about America and the rest of the world, because part of Joe Biden's offer was that he would make sure that America was back, that it was back with a seat at the table, perhaps at the head of the table, in the family of nations, whether that be the United Nations or on climate change or the World Health Organization. Joe Biden made that promise. How has it panned out, especially given that perhaps the foreign policy act or decision he is best known for around the world is the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and those terrible images in August of 2021, as the West and Americans sort of scrambled to leave uh, Kabul and the Taliban instantly took control. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. How badly damaged has that left Biden standing, do you think, around the world? And maybe even some of that plays back domestically. Yes. So I think that the images from Afghanistan, particularly after the fall of Kabul, those images will be some of the most enduring of uh, in history from the year 2021. I mean, I think it's fair to say it harmed America's reputation on the world stage. It also really seems to have harmed Biden's reputation at home. When you look at sort of graphs that depict Biden's approval rating since he came into office, there is a noticeable sort of downturn at the point of the Afghanistan withdrawal, and it has not really recovered since. So it really does instill this idea that Americans were expecting a more stable foreign policy hand from Biden when he came into office. And certainly many of America's allies are still very grateful to not be dealing with an America first president. But there have been moments of real pain and chaos and confusion in relation to America's foreign policy. And so in some ways, I think many Americans feel like that is a promise that Biden has not followed through on. I think that's right. I think some of the disappointment um, perhaps is sharpest about an issue that was, we know from the data, was massively mobilizing, particularly for younger voters, and that is the climate emergency. And there were high hopes that a Biden administration would get America back on track. Uh, we saw the COP26 summit in, in, in held in Glasgow. You know, Joe Biden was there, but Xi Jinping of China was not there. There was some sort of coming together right at the end there. But again, the relationship with China, the, 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 the expectation or the hope that Biden might work together with Beijing to 
you know, deal with this most urgent planetary issue and other things, how much change has there really been uh, from the posture that Joe Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, had with China? And, and, and what, do you see any change in approach in the coming year? So there were definitely some moments of agreement between the U.S. and China this year, as you noted. But I think that the year 2021 has shattered any illusion that Biden coming into office would immediately improve the U.S.-Chinese relationship. U.S. athletes will attend the Beijing Games next year. U.S. officials will not. That was the-, the year ended with the U.S. announcing a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Olympics in Beijing because of China's human rights record. And that move, which was quickly mirrored by some of America's allies, absolutely outraged the Chinese. And I think we'll be certainly dealing with the repercussions of that decision into 2022 as the Olympic Games begin. So it could be another very contentious year for the U.S.-Chinese relationship. And all over, you've mentioned how his poll numbers took a big dip after the Afghan withdrawal. He hasn't got uh, the second of those two big defining bills through. What's your sense, without asking you to you know, play crystal ball here, what's your sense of how the Biden presidency plays out in 2022? Do people think it's going to pick itself right back up and get, take those numbers back up again? Or do people think it's now in a groove that is going to continue all the way to those predicted setback defeats for the Democrats in the midterm elections in November? So I think that one of the realities that Biden is dealing with as president is that things are still very difficult in the U.S. generally. And that is mirrored around the world, of course, right? I mean, we have been dealing with a pandemic for more than a year and a half at this point. And There had been hope that once the vaccines were rolled out, that we would be able to quickly alleviate most restrictions and that things would go back to some semblance of normal. And we just haven't really seen that. I mean, vaccines are absolutely life changing. And I think that the entire world is extremely grateful for them. But the emergence of the Omicron variant really underscores the fact that we will be dealing with this for a while longer. And I think that Americans' frustration with that reality has been quite helpful to Republicans. As of now, Republicans are favored to take back the House of Representatives, and Biden's dipping favorability rating could make it harder for Democrats to win Senate, gubernatorial, and state legislative races as well. So I think Democrats need to find a a message in 2022 to convince voters to reelect them. But if they can't pass the Build Back Better Act, I think that they will have a really hard task in trying to convince voters that they have made the most of their time in control of both Congress and the White House. Yes, and and including some of their own voters. There may be Democratic voters who themselves feel disappointed without too much to show for it. Now, Joni, as you know, because you've sat in the same chair that I'm in right now, uh, on our podcast, we always do like to ask a what else question. So the what else of the year is some of the dishonorable mentions of the year. Ted Cruz took that trip to Mexico, even as his home state of Texas was battered by a winter storm. We had the long and very drawn out saga of the resignation uh, as New York governor of Andrew Cuomo. We've talked a lot about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was booted off various House committees for trafficking in conspiracy theories, some of them pretty wild. There's been a few. uh, Those have been the dishonourable mentions of 2021. Who do you tip? What contenders are there for some high profile scandals in 2022? So I'll be keeping a close eye, as we all are, on the House Select Committee that is investigating the Capitol insurrection, because in those text messages that were revealed 
earlier this week between Mark Meadows and some Republican lawmakers. As we discussed, there were some really alarming uh, messages included there from current office holders. There were Republicans who were expressing disappointment that they were not able to successfully overturn the results of the election. And one law- lawmaker even saying as early as November 4th, that they were interested in trying to send an alternate slate of Trump electors to Congress to try to effectively overturn the results of the election. Those lawmakers have not yet been identified, but it seems very likely, if not certain, that they will be. And once they are identified, I think you will very quickly see calls for their resignation. Well, we do, in fact, have one name already. The office of Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan confirmed on Wednesday that he was one of the lawmakers, one of the members of Congress who had been texting White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and it was one of his texts that was released by the committee investigating January the 6th just this week. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that revelation. Jeremy Grieve, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week and indeed throughout the year. I have no doubt at all that we'll be talking again in 2022. Thanks so much for having me. And that is all from me for this year, incredibly. We are taking a break for the next couple of weeks, but we will be back on the 7th of January. And please do join us then. Before I go, though, I want to let you know about this year's Guardian Charity Appeal, which went live this week. Each year, we reach out to our readers and listeners and ask you to help us make a difference to people who really need it. We've chosen to focus our appeal this year on the climate crisis, which, as our reporting has shown, is affecting our world in severe and unexpected ways. We're partnering up with charities that are focused on grassroots initiatives and are reaching those directly affected by the climate emergency. So if you can, please do donate today at theguardian.com slash charity 2021. Now, if you, like me, do love this period of the year, partly because of the sheer amount of football that is being played, do make sure to listen in to The Guardian's Football Weekly podcast, where you'll be guided through the festive football calendar by Max Rushton and the rest of the team. But for us, it's very nearly goodbye. The producer, as always, for us is Danielle Stevens. And I'm Jonathan Friedland. No matter what you're doing over the holiday period, I hope you do manage to have a relaxing and peaceful time. And more than ever, please do stay safe out there. And thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hier ist Clark. Sicher gibt es Dinge, bei denen du dich trotz einer Riesenauswahl super auskennst. Vielleicht sind es Automodelle oder Joghurtalternativen. Und wie sieht es mit Versicherungen aus? <lacht> Kein Problem. Mit Clark hast du auch da den Plan. Denn Clark vergleicht die Angebote von über 160 Versicherern für dich und empfiehlt dir die, die zu dir passen. Die Übersicht über alle deine Versicherungsverträge behältst du mit der kostenlosen Clark-App. Ganz ohne Papierkram. <lacht> 